Woohoo! Welcome to the Some Work All Play podcast. We are so happy uh, to be here with you today. Actually, we are recording at 8,000 feet. So we're a little bit short of breath at the yeah, moment. Yeah. So we might be gasping for air. And there are some background city noises. So, um, you know, I hate when podcasts apologize for that in advance, but basically we're just building in an excuse for ourselves. It's probably better than last week's po- last week's podcast, though, where my email sound went off within yeah. the first minute. And that sound to me is horrifying. It's almost like an alarm. It's like this impending stress. And so I'm very sorry if you pe- felt impending stress There's on like last a Pav- week's podcast. People had like a Pavlovian response and like <laughs> freaked out, peed themselves from, from anxiety. Um, yeah, no, I think um, I'm also glad that we didn't get any one-star reviews for that because I've seen other podcasts that like they'll get an email ding notification and then get a one-star review saying like, how dare they do that? Well, wait, this is gonna, you just queued it up. I bet it's coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as soon as uh, as soon as the car goes by outside. So we're recording a day later uh, today than usual. And I think the reason why might be a little bit relevant. Sorry about that, that's my fault. So I made a to-do list yesterday morning, which is funny because I'm still on that to-do list train. <laughs> and I realized I probably have 20,000 words of writing to do this week. And yesterday I was just feeling that writing flow, which was great because I'm the sort of person I feel daunted by blank pages. Mm -hmm. I think writing may be one of the hardest professions. I certainly don't call myself a writer, but I have to do a fair bit of writing for the work that I do. And boy, do I feel daunted by that blank page. And so yesterday, once I finally got some semblance of words down on paper, I was like, sorry, David, I'm rolling with this. (laughs) No podcast today. I got to channel this state. What does the blank page make you feel like? Because I always think that's super interesting because like, I think I'm one place I am lucky is that I am not particularly scared by that because my mom gave me the best advice of like, just don't think right. Like it doesn't have to be any good, but like, I've seen that with you, like you're an incredible writer, but I think sometimes not having anything on paper is tough. It is tough. And I love that advice that your mom gave you. And it makes me think of the advice that I channel a lot when I'm staring at the blank page, which is don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. And so to just get words on there and see what happens. But I spend a lot of time looking at that cursor that's just (laughs) blinking. It's kind of like, I think I have hypnosis from that, that blinking cursor. So that's how I feel. It's just kind of mind boggled um, a little bit not trusting of my writing skills yeah. and feeling like I just want this. A lot of times I find it comes up with introductions. So wanting yeah. to really grab the reader, engage the reader and just struggling with that. But once I get those first few sentences down, it usually starts going a little bit. I love that. There's this, this writer that used to write for Deadspin named Albert Berneko, who uh, I always struggle with conclusions. And I love the way he dealt with his own struggle with conclusions. He's just like, this blog is over after like 15,000 words on the NBA or something. Well, it's great writing our book together because I struggle with introductions and you struggle yeah. with conclusions. I feel like Tinder should have matched us up for this, oh like purely based on that. Freaking destiny. I love it. Um, yeah. So this week is all about like, we're challenging ourselves to new things. Um, I've been biking more, which is a big thing for me because I started biking way back in college and I was in New York City and had so many run-ins with cars that I just developed this association between biking and like road rash and also extreme pain from workouts. Um, So Megan has been gently easing me back in, which has meant a lot. Thank you so much. It's meaningful. So I spent, we rode on Sunday and I spent probably three hours just staring at your powerful calves as I was trying to keep up going uphill. And it was like, it was my dream date. So thank you. Oh, that means so much to me. I need to start doing more calf raises. Was my butt ever in the picture? Oh, it for sure was. Yes. Oh, just trying to keep it PG for I'm this just, podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just so glad this is on. Granted, my bike shorts are all ripped up, so you get a good view from, from all angles right now. Um, 
Yeah, and I also, I brought out the nasal strips, which is how you know I'm getting serious. I was like, breathe right time. I called you out on that because when you got when you first got a bike, you're like, I'm only doing this for joyriding. And then on Sunday, you showed up with the nasal strip and I'm, I was like, David, this doesn't look like joyriding <laughs> to me. Yeah, I feel like those probably don't, if they make a difference, they don't really make a difference until you get to VO2 max. So I was clearly planning, planning ahead for when we got to the top of the steep climb. Um, but yeah, so, and you know, you've been challenging yourself too. Like I've, what you've done with strength work recently, because you're building from the ground up. So like you're biking so much because you're just 2020 is kind of a throwaway year for a lot of people race wise. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm super, it's super cool to see you respond to strength and everything else you're doing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I'm trying to use this time to work my mobility, strength, try new things. I'm loving the biking and thinking that at some point I may want to add bike racing to my repertoire, including trail running, mountain running, bike racing. Time trials. Not, yes. Yeah. No downhill bike racing. No, no I promised, I promised you and my parents, I would not race downhills. Yeah. So uphill time trials. I am. Considering. I have enough metal plates in my body to like prevent bike racing from being a thing our family should do in the future. But bike workouts are hard. They are way harder than running workouts. And I think it's great because it's really like, it's one of those things just like in, that's making me embrace pain. And just yeah. like this morning, I was so nervous going out the door. I was like, wow, I am about to embrace a world of hurt right well, now. Well, writing is so much easier than a VO2 max workout. Actually, no, it's false. Is I it? think writing writing an introduction, I would rather do a VO2 max workout than write an introduction. Oh my gosh, really? Yes. How'd you feel today going into So Megan had a VO2 max workout on the bike today which three minute intervals, which I, I mean, I would almost like get a little bit of bile in my mouth just thinking about that. Like, how did you feel going in? Well, last night I was jazzed about it. I was like, I'm ready for pain. I'm going to do this. This is going to be a great day. And then I woke up this morning and had rough menstrual cramps Mm -hmm. and I, I don't get those too often. I think it's one of those things that seems to be hit or miss for me. It's just kind of random. Like some, some menstrual cycles, I get them and some I don't. And so I was, I was heading out the door this morning and I was procrastinating for sure because I was like half wobbling in pain. And I was like, again, I was like, don't let the perfect get in the way of the good and just go out and put some efforts. And what do you know, like within the first effort, those cramps started to go away. I think it's, you know, a combination of the increased blood flow, which is great for menstrual cramps, but also just my endorphins kicking yeah. in. And I was like, I can't feel anything. This is great. I think you could probably saw my arm off in one of those <laughs> endorphin states. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm good. That's tis, so true. Tis but a flesh wound. <laughs> oh, that's a great reference. Oh my God. Um, what are you thinking about during those intervals? Like we didn't talk about this, but I'm actually super curious because you have this ability in workouts and races, I think to remove yourself from your thoughts in a way I don't really, like I have trouble like I, I, I alternate between being too present and not present enough. <laughs> I don't think about anything. Really? Yeah. So I think most of the time I don't think about anything. Yeah. Sometimes I will have brief interruptions for things like deer yeah. or moose. Um, or sexy calves. Yeah. Or sometimes I'll do math with the numbers. Oh, cool. So like if I have three minutes left, I'll calculate like what percentage I have left. Um, I've heard Dina Castor or Shalane or someone does that too. That's really interesting. Yeah. But my brain loves math. So it's kind of like the same flow state, but I, I oftentimes just try to wipe my mind totally blank. That's so cool. I, I really want to try to harness that. Maybe we can talk about that in time and maybe too, in a future episode, we can talk more about the menstrual cycle and athletics because I think it's highly individual. But we've gotten a lot of questions about that. I think it's a great topic. And and um, there's some fun physiology to dive into on that as well. Awesome. And so speaking of last topics from uh, last week, before we get into this week, um, we had a number of people reach out when we talked about fear of wildlife that said education is a really important topic there. Like once you dive into the education about different different creatures, in this, in this case, it was moose, um, it takes away some of the stigma and that that's really powerful. Um, so of course, I was like, I'm going to research a little bit more about moose. And I did. And I found out that moose are actually pretty scary. Um, And so I'm on my run on Saturday. I'm at the top 
in the middle of nowhere. No one's within miles of me. And I turn a corner and a moose is just staring at me. This massive, big old buck with huge, uh, huge antlers. And it's just like, yo asshole, say it to my face. And what did you do? But you took a video of said moose and it appeared on Instagram, which is exactly what I said, told people not to do. <laughs> yeah. I saw this moose appear on Instagram. I'm like, David, we just had this conversation. I feel like Alanis Morissette would make ironic again about me getting gored by a moose. Isn't it ironic? Um, but yeah, I was also very scared in the moment. And it, it actually brought me back to like, while I was able to take a video, it might've been shaking a little bit from nerves. So if you are fearful of things, uh, I think that Moose was trying to tell me, hey, let them be scared. They should be. Um, so yeah, the topics this week are on smoke, um, alcohol, and selling yourself. And when I told Megan that yesterday, I texted her the, the possible topics. Actually, you texted it from upstairs while I was downstairs, which I think describes where our training is right now. Yeah, yeah. We're pretty tired walking up and downstairs. Well, yeah. And yesterday was my rest day, so I was totally comatose, essentially. Um, and Megan's like, smoke, alcohol, and selling yourself. That's what all my favorite music's about. <laughs> and I thought that joke was amazing. Um, and I think it's a great way to ease it in. Like that's our, it's our Dr. Dre topics this week. So you wanna, you wanna get started on topic one? Let's get jiggy with it. <laughs> oh man, I don't know if Will Smith talks about smoke too much. Um, awesome. So the, the first topic is on fires in the West and smoke. We've gotten a lot of questions on that. Um, so I'll just read one. Uh, can you answer a question for me regarding air quality? How bad is too bad? If I'm healthy um, and I'm still doing damage, am I still doing damage on a high ozone or particulate day from smoke? Uh, what about moderate air quality days? Is it safer to just stay inside when air is bad on the front range or other places in the country? Please advise. And that is from listener VG. Um, so Megan is the doctor here. So do you want to do a quick overview of science? I can do a quick overview of the science. Let's do it. So basically diving into PM 2.5. So when we think about smoke right now, we're talking about particulates, which are so small that they can burrow deep inside the lungs and even into the bloodstream. And this process causes local and systemic inflammation and often circulatory issues. The science behind it and the physiology behind it's kind of complex, but in addition to the inflammation, what we also see are processes of coagulation, platelet activation, a term called airway remodeling, <laughs> which I think is really funny because every time I hear airway remodeling, I think about bathroom remodeling and I'm like, oh, is that airway getting a new a new sink in there? Oh my God, it's kind of the same thing I imagine. That yeah. kind of sounds pretty bad when it's your airway. But right now this is about smoke, but uh, there's lots of other things that relate to PM 2.5 as well, including like industrial activity, ozone, all of these different things. And actually David is a climate scientist. So I'm going to pass the baton on to you because you are more skilled at dealing with I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call myself a climate scientist. I would say that I know just a little bit about it because that was my uh, undergrad degree. And then I got a master's degree in related topics. So, so you're a climate scientist. Absolutely not. Okay. Because, uh, I haven't I haven't kept up on the science recently. But yeah, I mean, one thing that they always emphasize, and the reason I went to law school is because when you study PM 2.5 in particular, um, and they look at the Clean Air Act and how it reduced PM 2.5 levels throughout the country, it has saved millions of life years. So like the number of years that are added to lives. Um, so that PM 2.5 isn't just about athletic performance or, or your airways getting constricted or anything like that. It's about major health issues. And I think that probably gets to how the particles are so small that they burrow into your bloodstream and your lungs, right? So yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. There's a lot of cool store studies on it. Um, and I think we'll just jump into the studies. I, I was going to tee up a, a story from college, but I think it's a little bit too in the weeds for, for this right now. So yeah, let's talk about... Um, some of the some of the studies on hospital admissions. PM two point five is pretty hard to study. Pretty much like every uh, 
like everything like this, it's there's tons of confounding variables, but one of the main ways they do it across the population are through hospital admissions. So basically on these population-wide scales, on days and in, in periods of time when PM 2.5 is high, especially over multiple day cycles, hospital admissions skyrocket. And what they're seeing primarily there are cardiovascular events. Mm. They've looked at cardiovascular events, respiratory events, and then cerebrovascular events. And cardiovascular events are the big driver and that's in, the, in these situations so far. Yeah, and you would assume that's primarily for vulnerable subpopulations, but runners are in like athletes are carrying a lot more oxygen into their system. So there might be a lot of things there. Um, and probably our, I think both of our favorite studies was this China, this study done in China on sham air filters. So, Which, how the heck do you pass that through an IRB? I yeah. want to know. So um, sham filters involve giving people a faulty air filter that doesn't work or essentially like a fake air, air filter. Um, so they don't know that they're, you know, not, yeah. being, not being exposed to, to good air. So there's a control group with totally fake air filters and then a, a, a application group with real air filters. And the people that had sham air filters, um, their, the PM 2.5 in their rooms was only 60 um, versus 25 for the regulars, which if you know much about how that data works, that's not that high. To put in that into context, a lot of the Bay Area places right now have been seeing AQIs of around 250, wow. which is really high. Yeah, yeah. And the that group had elevated cortisol, elevated um, negative health impacts, biomarkers across the board after a few weeks. So in other words, chronic exposures can be really, really tough. Um, and so I think that gets us to the athlete stuff and the athlete considerations that people need to do. There's been a few studies looking at athletes. So there's a 2008 study that looked at 13 ice hockey athletes and put them on the bike for subsequent performance trials. Ice hockey? I know, I was confused. I was like, A, it's, this is 13 athletes. Yeah. That's not very many athletes. But also, why are they taking ice hockey athletes and doing this? I figure uh, ice hockey athletes may have been the only ones to volunteer yeah. for exposure Maybe it's like off-season or something. Yeah, I'm confused by that. Um, but basically, the premise of this study was they wanted to do this because it's known that in rats that um, – poor air quality causes um, increased plasma endothelin levels. Um, and that impacts muscle performance because it compromises oxygen delivery okay. um, through arterioles, which are smaller um, vessels. Um, and it causes constrictive responses in the microvasculature. And that's actually, um, in terms of the constrictive responses, that's what they found in this study. But what I thought was most interesting about this study was that these responses didn't occur during the first performance mm -hmm. trial. So the way they structured the study was the athletes did one performance cycling event and then waited three days and then did another. And they found decreased performance and then also um, impacts by like, you know, inflammation and these variables in that subsequent. Interesting. Day. So it was not on, it was like, the more they did it in those conditions, the worse it got. Exactly. And I that parallels some of the athletes that I've seen coaching where the first day that they run in smoke, they're like, oh, hey, this didn't yeah. bother me at all. And then two or three days later, they wake up and they're sore, they're tired, they're fatigued, they get out the door and run, and they just feel like they're not performing at the same level. So interesting. Yeah. And I think it probably depends heavily on what the actual air quality levels are. So like, um, there's another study I've seen that was in moderate AQI, like 50 to 100. Um, that saw no performance and differences in performance or biomarkers. But like to the Megan caveat there, that wasn't done on multiple exposures. Like I wonder how that would be after two or three weeks, which is what we're facing a lot with the smoke in the West. Um, so, I mean, I think the big conclusion here is that it probably affects everyone differently with some baseline physiological response like rules. So for me, for instance, like I seem to be very affected by smoke. I, I'm usually not affected by much, but I did one 10 miler last year in, in heavy smoke conditions and was so sore the next day. And I didn't have any idea why until Megan was like, that was probably an inflammation response to the smoke. Um, and I think 
a good way for athletes to think about it is that 100 AQI level. Um, there's enough studies on moderate AQI that, you know, we probably want to take it easy and go slow when it's moderate. Um, but it's probably okay as long as you're not a, a very sensitive individual to do some activity. I think the other thing to think about right now too is the interaction between this AQI and potential risk for COVID. Ah. Um, so when we're talking about these respiratory issues, we're talking about inflammation, these are all many of the same processes in which COVID acts on. And so people who may have recovered from COVID or who may be at higher risk of COVID, whether they're essential workers or healthcare workers or have had exposure, I think it's extra important to be mindful of the air quality and just to make sure that you're not causing these systemic um, you know, inflammation markers to rise across the board. Yeah. Yeah, so like, what are you telling athletes that are wondering about this, that you're coaching right now? Like, like I'm having trouble actually coaching right now because I'm like, well, you can maybe run outside. It really depends. Um, are you saying it depends? Are you giving them leeway? Like, how are you framing it? I think just emphasizing to err on the side of caution and okay. that um, it's highly dependent for individuals. Like, I think I've seen many different individual responses. And then it's also dependent upon where you're living and what your situation yeah. is, what access you have to indoor activities. And so for me, it's been on a case-to-case -case basis with athletes. Yeah, in 2020, is a crap storm and it's okay if you take some time off right now right like, exactly yeah. it's a great time to do strength work like the the speed legs workout you can google speed legs it's a great time to adapt to that if you're not able to run outside for whatever reason whether that's smoke or just like the other things that are causing it to be a crap storm or get creative i've seen athletes do stair workouts like all different kinds of things like stair workouts within the context of like an indoor environment so yeah, i yeah. mean there's like all different ways that you can get creative right now i have one athlete that ran barefoot around their uh their room because they're like, oh, I've always wanted to try barefoot running and now's a great time. The last point on this too is, is that we see a lot of variability within areas. So like, for example, in Colorado, there'll be pockets of places that oh, yeah. have pretty decent air quality. And I think as long as you're not um, you know, impacting traffic flow that could, that could impact firefighters. So for example, like don't get, don't go to an area that yeah. like firefighters are trying to get to and clog traffic. But like, if you can get to those areas, great. That's probably an area you want to get away from <laughs> is where the firefighters <laughs> are trying to get to. Yeah. And also be aware of microclimate. So while the, the air quality index might say a certain thing, it might actually be different where you are. It might be way worse. So if you smell smoke, like if you're in that type of environment, really just err on, err on the side of caution, as Megan said. Awesome. Ready for topic two? Let's do it. Awesome. So topic two is on alcohol, continuing our uh, our exciting uh, substances review. Um, so I'll read the question and then we'll get into it. I love a nice cold beer after a run or bike ride. However, that beer typically turns into four to six beers. This was my typical daily consumption throughout my training for my first 50K. I successfully completed my training and the race, which I celebrated with a few beers. That's amazing. Um, how different would my training and performance have been without the four to six daily beers? What is a healthy beer consumption level for a long-term training plan? Does this affect my Kegel Watts? I that's, totally, a, that's a great ending question. I totally forgot that was in there. Um, that's amazing. And that's from listener KJ. Thank you. Um, so the first place to start is on, are on general considerations of addiction and dependence. So whenever we talk about things like alcohol, I mean, we're often joking around about having a beer to celebrate, or I mean, um, it goes for exercise, it goes for eating, uh, it goes for, it goes for everything really. It even goes for training. Like we yeah. can, we can make the argument that ultra running is an addiction for many people in some For places, sure. Yeah. And so um, understanding when things go from like, you're worried about your health in like a physical state to your health in a psychological and like long-term dependency sort of way. It's really important. There's tons of amazing resources. Like we are massive fans of Alcohol Anonymous. Like we've seen amazing results for that, but basically talking to people about it, if you feel like you need to have alcohol every day or anything like that. And if you're going through that, you are loved and it's okay. 
And I think we should also do a follow-up on addiction in general, just because I think the the um, physiology behind it, the psychology behind it is, oh, yeah, is would, really interesting. And that'd be so fun. Um, I think it's something that we should dive into. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So as we're throwing around terms and things, just know that like if you're going through that, the the best place to start is zero drinks and then go from there, like if you're dealing with major issues. Actually, so we were thinking about stories on alcohol in our lives, and it brought us back to when we first met, the a New Year's Eve race, our first race together at, um, that started when the ball dropped at midnight. Um, and yeah, like what was the story that it was with your family, right? It was with my family. And for us, that's kind of a nightmare because we're morning people. So yeah. racing at midnight is kind of like, it's actually closer to our morning wake up in some sense <laughs> than it is to our evening uh, bedtime. So it was definitely an interesting experience for us, but we had wine before we raced. So yeah. we had wine and a big dinner, which we were young and stupid. And in retrospect, don't do that before you no. race, but it was New Year's Eve. So we're like, why not? But of course, neither of us could get to that start line and run easy because that's just who we are. But yeah, so we, we had this. It this went really well. I felt amazing off of a glass of wine, which is different than what the studies say. Um, and I think maybe that's because we were in our early 20s. And that is very easy when you're in your early 20s. I think we were also young and in love. And I think that, yeah. that goes for, let's say, a very heavy confounding variable. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I always felt like I had the best uh, superpowers. But yeah, we were also wearing evening wear. Megan was in a dress. The first time I'd ever seen her in a dress because they um, all the, it only counted to get the $100 first place prize if you wore um, a fancy tuxedo or something. So Megan, uh, those are some of my favorite race photos ever. So, and then afterwards we had white Russian protein vodkas um, with like vanilla whey protein. So that was a really good It was good pretty day. good. That yeah. should be a drink. We should really start doing this uh, thing again. So in other words, um, it's highly individual dependent. If we did that now, we would be so screwed, right? Yeah, there's no way. I drink a glass of wine and I'm like, I must go to sleep immediately. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. I do that. And I even have like one beer now. And then the next morning I'm like, exercise seems like it's not wise. Um, so, and that kind of gets to some of the studies. So there's a, you know, there's tons of studies on this that Megan was researching today. Yeah. I think my favorite, actually this, this one study from 2008 gives a great conclusion, which I think um, summarizes it far better than I can. So I'll read this for you. Whether or not alcohol influences exercise and sport performance remains contradictory. It is believed that alcohol has deleterious effects on performance, although it may contribute to reduce pain and anxiety. The alcohol effects on sports performance depend on the type and dosage of alcohol, acute versus chronic administration, the alcohol elimination rate, as well as the type of exercise. So basically what that study is highlighting is that it is highly individual. Yeah. It also is highlighting that you rocked the pronunciation of deleterious, if that's how you say it. I saw that coming up and I was like, oh no. I know. I was amazed that we didn't change that word. No one would know the difference. Um, but yeah, so it's highly individual dependent. And um, there's a bunch of studies actually on before and during exercise, which must be the most fun study to, to participate in. Um, and a number of different studies have found a slight decrease in power if you do it before or during. Though, you know, there's stories of Camille Heron um, drinking alcohol during her ultra races. So perhaps it, it varies for each person. Um, I think the big question here is after. Um, so like after, you know, there's a bunch of effects, like, did you, did you, what are those? Um, so some of the effects are that it can inhibit inflammatory processes, which are actually key for adaptation. Um, and so although it may make you feel great in the moment, um, it probably isn't giving you that long-term mm -hmm. recovery and the long-term adaptation that you need to get better. So when you feel like loose and goosey, loosey goosey, that's actually like 
probably not a good thing for adaptation. Yes. The other thing too, actually, that I think is interesting is there's been some very small studies that have looked at the impacts on alcohol on um, injury recovery. And so what they found is, is that alcohol may cause limitations in blood flow and protein synthesis, which may mean that um, recovery from these injuries is impaired. Um, and, but again, this is like, it's like one of those things. It's like, are these people drinking one drink or four drinks? And it's so, it's so individual and so hard to tease out. Yeah. And I mean, there, there were studies on testosterone too. Like one of the classic stories is Floyd Landis back in the day in cycling. Um, he got dropped one day and then the next day did a six hour break off the front to win the race. And obviously in retrospect, we know that he was taking something very, uh, uh, illegal, but what his excuse was at the time was that he had a, uh, like bourbon or something the night before. Um, and the reason they did that is because there's a 2003 study about how alcohol affects testosterone production that showed it might cause a slight increase. So they must have done a PubMed search really quickly and found that and then been like, hey, this is this is why I have these faulty readings. I don't love this study though. So this study was done on 13 men and they told these yeah. men not to drink for a week and then followed them for only four observations subsequently. And essentially the biology, so I think A, the study design is not great. 13 men is not a large sample size, but the biology also doesn't make a lot of sense to me either. So essentially what they found is that um, the reason the testosterone was increasing was because it was not being broken down as mm. much in the liver. Um, but also in addition to that, um, it was being the synthesis of it from the testes or from the gonads was being inhibited. So it essentially like wasn't really even a great biological process either. It's not like we were causing increased synthesis of testosterone. Yeah, yeah. It was just not breaking it down as fast. And it was only done in a short time period. I'm like, yeah. there's no way that can hold up. Yeah, I wonder how that would term. be on would, how, would that apply similarly to women? It probably it would apply similar to women, and they actually cited um, that in the study as well. But the other thing too is is that um, alcoholic men are known to have low testosterone, and so like when you put two and two together, I just don't love the biological premise of this study. Yeah, and so the final consideration is just like mortality and overall health, and that's all over the place. I mean, they say that like one drink of wine. There's some evidence in cross population studies that that might increase longevity. But there's so many confounding variables on any like any study that says, well, if you have a serving of broccoli, you're going to live longer. It's like, well, there's 8 million variables that go into that. So do you think we can draw any conclusions? It's really hard to draw conclusions. Yeah. So to answer the question, I think, you know, based on what we see in athletes, four to six beers, you know, you're probably not doing yourself any favors. Um, a drink is fine. Once you start going over two drinks, though, it seems to be a cutoff point in the literature and in athletes that we see where there can be major negative effects. So if that's a consistent thing for you, I would I would really consider trying cutting down and also like you know, talking to someone that's an expert in this area to see if there might be bigger issues at play. I would agree with that. I also think for women too, um, you know, oftentimes men can drink a little bit more than women. And so it's really important too, just to like, keep that in mind. But you can drink me under the table because I am a lightweight. That is true. <laughs> yeah. My, uh, my one drink makes me uh, tipsy for three days. Awesome. So last question in the few minutes that we have left, um, we're going to do this really quick. We've got a bunch of questions about um, something we said before, selling yourself, um, one in particular by HG. Um, so the basic message here, and we're just going to do it really quick, is that shooting your shot takes swag. You have to put yourself out there and you can't just expect other people to give it to you. Um, my favorite example of this is, is Shea Serrano, who we talked about on the podcast before, but he does a lot of these self-published books and um, things like this. And he's just like, if I'm not going to sell this stuff, who is? No one's going to step up for me and sell this stuff. And that through that, he made... he brought himself from just like a writer writing for local magazines to an international best-selling author. And, you know, I think that's probably easier for Shay in some ways because he comes from a background that like, you know, he's all about basketball. He's like, yeah, we shoot our shots. I think it's probably harder for like, you know, people that might be a little bit 
like just not used to that, right? Or more shy. Like for yeah. me, like that's not my that's not my traditional like go to personality. And so I've, I've I've actually really had to work on that. I did um, a mock interview in undergraduate for um, medical school, and that was one of the biggest feedbacks they gave me is like go into life knowing that no one knows your resume, and yeah. it's not like you're gonna go out there and like spew your resume yeah. on the streets, but you have to like you have to go out there and promote yourself and advocate for. You yourself. have to own yourself, yeah, right? Exactly. Like you have to be like, yeah, you don't want to go to a restaurant that's like our food is okay, right? You want to go to a restaurant that's like our food is great because the restaurant actually believes in their food. Like you don't want them to say like, you know, our medical advice is great. You want it, you want it to be an expert, but same thing with your doctors. Like you want them to know what they're doing. Um, and the same thing goes for whatever your thing is. So like work and make sense. Like coaching is a great example. You know, as a coach, you have to be like, I know what I'm doing. I am here for you with expertise, which is so awkward and uncomfortable for people. Like if your athletes have a good result, you need to tell people about it, especially when you're starting out, like maybe not when you're established. And that also introduces a thing. It's like, often we look to people that are established that can be super humble and not say things. And it's like, well, for them, they don't really have to sell Well, themselves. I think you can balance that with humility. So yeah. what I love is some of the people who I know that are really successful often are like, the more I learn, the more I learn, I don't know. Yeah. But they're not, they're not undercutting themselves. They're not, they're not like selling themselves short. They're just acknowledging the fact that there's a lot more to learn. And I think there's a really great, great way to walk that line. Um, and I see doctors do it all the time. Like you mentioned the surgeon example. Yeah. And it's like, I don't want to go see a surgeon who's like so confident yeah. that they're going to cut into like all of my different organs. It's like, you know, I want that surgeon to acknowledge what they know, acknowledge what they're learning and um, really just give me the honest feedback and honest answer. And so I think there's a great way to do that while also being honest. Yeah, I love that. So like finding the balance. I think one problem, the problem I see is that people go all the way on one side of the balance. It's like, if I say I'm great at something or own my awesomeness, then I'm going to be looked down upon. It's like, that's not, you know, kind of me. And you, I did see this problem, especially for, for women on the team and things. It's like, no, you're freaking awesome. And you have, we have to own that. And, and how you own that is up to an individual, but like, I wouldn't be shy about putting yourself out there, whether it's social media or your website, um, your friends, your family, it's like, no, I'm great. And that's okay to say. And I think if people do that for you, so if people give you a compliment or people yeah. promote you, like oh, yeah. don't undercut it. Like yeah. I see that all the time. I, and I, people, even I do that, yeah. People are like, oh no, like I didn't train that hard. I had a good day. I got lucky or, you yeah. know, any, any number of excuses to cut themselves down and like, be like, no, like I worked hard for that. Yeah. So the message here is bet on yourself. So when you're selling yourself, that means that you got to put all the chips on the table and say, I got this. This is all me. Go for it. Let's do it. Bet on yourself. Woohoo. Have a great day. Bye.